We're in the midst of a financial teaching series, um, and we've called it Mimicking the Macedonians. This is um, me wrapping it up over the next couple of weeks. And um, God's doing something really special. You know, the truth is, a pastor gets really nervous when we start a teaching series, because some people choose not to come to church the moment they hear that. Um, Some people turn off because they think the church is only after their money. Um, But what we've experienced in the opposite vein is a real grace on this series, the feedback, the encounters people are having, the, the, the change that's occurring in people as God is ministering to them. It's just great to watch. That's my greatest joy, that we would be obedient to what God asked us to do and that you would bear fruit because of it. But more than that, I think God's doing something in His church globally because as a pastor, I connect with and meet with other pastors. And I can name seven other churches at this moment, this morning, that are teaching on money. Independent of what we're doing, they didn't come and ask me what I was doing to choose their plans. God spoke to them and their eldership, and they ordained a season of grace for teaching on money. And, and I, I see patterns, and I know God's up to something. So why do I say that to you? Well, lean in to what God wants to do. Lean in to what God might be challenging you in, and lean in to what God's prepared for you, because God is doing something special in His church. Today's message, for those that like titles on a message, uh, is liberality. Liberality comes out of uh, a verse in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 from the New American Standard translation. Paul writes regarding the church of Macedonia, in verse 2 he says, In great ordeal of their affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. It's actually a word. Who knew? But look at the tension in this verse. There's always tension when I talk about money. Look at the tension in this verse. Look, try to imagine what it's like for you in that tension if you're not already there. There's an ordeal of affliction. Struggle, pain, oppression, challenge, mountains of debt, whatever it is. But also in the ordeal of affliction, there's abundant joy. It's in the text. Out of the great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty. Like, what's going on here? Is Paul confused? Are the Macedonians in a bit of turmoil? Well, Paul's saying, look, there is great affliction, but there is an abundance of joy in them. Well, where did that come from? And, And there's a deep poverty. Well, that's their reality. But it overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. That was the outcome of them being under affliction, experiencing joy, and living in poverty. It's madness to me. Wealth, when I looked at the word translations, wealth actually means the ability to do good. It's not about a bank balance. Wealth is described by Paul as the ability to do good. Generosity actually means copious, extravagant, massive, So what he's saying is, out of their joy, or the affliction, the joy, and the poverty, there was copious amounts of doing good. That's what Paul's writing about. So it sounds like the purpose of God's family. And our struggle, or affliction, and our joy that we have when we come together, and the reality of our circumstances, there can be a copious amounts of doing good for others. That's what it means to be family. 
family of God specifically. But for those of you that like a definition, I thought, well, what I'd do is I'd um, define liberality for you. It's generosity that flows out of joy. And I want to talk about it today. Generosity that flows out of joy. What I want to do is I want to walk you through a series of thoughts this morning. I'm going to point to the Macedonians. We're going to look back, find another example. And what I want you to do is I want you to find what's in this for you. Because I'm well aware that I'm speaking to probably three types of listeners this morning. There are those people that are listening, watching online, or um, here in the seats that have never, ever considered giving. Just not on their grid. Well, today I, I would pray that you might hear something fresh from God that stirs you and compels you to respond. That's what I would hope. That you would learn something about how to walk in what I refer to as God's model for finances. God's model for finances. The second type of listener that I'm, I'm speaking to are those that are already giving. You were either raised to do it, you were demonstrated to do it, or you were taught to do it, or somehow you just started. What I'd hope that you would do is lean in. That you wouldn't switch off because you're like, oh, I got that sorted, I got the AP set up. No, lean in. God wants to bring layers and layers of revelation to us, and I believe today there's more revelation for every person. And I guess, even if you are here, there might be someone that doesn't want to listen to a message in finance. This is not an opportunity to check Instagram, catch up on emails, or write your shopping list. God's got something for everyone. God's got something for everybody. And, and, and let me just say this, this is not me beating you up and manipulating you into something that I want you to do, even if I know it's good for you. With God, there's no should do. Don't read the Bible like that. God lets you free will to choose if you will or you won't. That's it. That's how he is as a father. Today, what I thought I'd do, though, I talked to the team about this, and what I might do is I might remove some rubble, because there's a whole lot of noise and confusion sometimes around money and what the Bible says around money. And uh, I'm just going to zoom through a few thoughts just to shift them out of the way before I, I start opening up to the message. And I really do hope that you continue listening after I've done this, because there might be some contentious thoughts on the screen. One of the things that um, Kathy and I have journeyed throughout the years is what I call an increasing revelation in this area. Um, most of you will know my background is in the area of money and my businesses have been around the area of money. But for us as a family, we've had to walk this journey. The beginning, when we were young and, and newly married, we didn't care. I mean, we were hopeless with money, so that kind of added to the problem. But we had to learn. And then God just continued to show us more and more and more about what he had in relation to what I call kingdom finances. And it's only as we've submitted to him that we've matured in him. And when we mature in him, the revelation leads us into his disciplines. And I can promise you it leads to new levels of financial freedom. If that's a phrase that sounds foreign to you, God has the answer for you. Let's see what we uncover in the beginning. So have a look up here. Uh, what I want you to do, because the word tithe gets mentioned. Tithe is definitely a biblical word. It's in the Old Testament. Um, but my friend who teaches this for out of the States, he says, think of the tithe as giving as your first action. Giving as your first action. Tithe actually means one-tenth. And if you're going to tithe, you have to tithe on everything. Absolutely everything. And one-tenth, that has to be. If you're giving 5%, that's not a tithe. If you're giving 24%, that's not a tithe, because tithe is a tenth. And, and Jesus told the Pharisees off. 
because they were giving even a tenth of their herbs, he says. But the problem was their heart wasn't changed. So it's not about a rule, it's about the heart. And what Jesus says, actually, look at the phrase up here, righteousness trumps performance. How do you become righteous? In Jesus. So you can't do it. But righteousness, Jesus says, is a heart condition, and your heart condition is far greater in importance than what you do, your performance or your tasks or your following rules. We put principles in place to help people learn discipline. But the whole point in, in, in discipline is that you would learn how to take care of your own heart. Jesus came in order that he would teach us how to prepare our hearts before him. What's the next one? Tithing is a principle to help us develop a discipline which becomes your launching platform. Learning how to give with God is a process. It's a journey we go on, and it's a never-ending journey. You don't just get to a point where you go, oh, well, I ticked that off. Cool. What's next? No, no. Make 10% your first milestone, not your destination. When I was teaching this in communities in the early 2000s, I was working with a guy, not a Christian guy, but he knew that I went to church and that I was studying the Bible with regards to money, and his name was Tony. And he said, look, I really understand that giving first as a priority is a good thing to do, and I want to be a good person. He says, but like 10%, seriously, you've got to be joking. Like, it might affect my image, it might affect my lifestyle, it might affect what I want to achieve. He says, I'm going to start with 1%. I'm like, all right, let's see if it works. He started with 1% and he realized that things didn't change too much. He could still afford to have a nice suit and go out for dinner. So he doubled it to 2%. And after we caught up in three months' time, he was giving 5%. And not long after that, he was giving 10% of his income to good works. So he, he built himself a pathway towards it. And Ash shared a testimony on that uh, last week. All right? This is about going on a journey with God. Okay, this is an interesting conversation because I don't know if you've ever had this, but because um, when we talked about it in the office, some said they'd heard about it, some said they hadn't, but apparently there's always a debate in different environments around, well, should I give a percentage of my net income or should I give a percentage of my gross income, which is the right one to do? And if you know how to do math, then you'll understand that even 10% of your net income is a lower amount than 10% of your gross income, so let's argue for the net. And my point, as you can see on the screen, if you're having this argument, you've completely missed the point. Because giving is about obedience, and obedience is about listening, and listening is about who you listen to. So don't ask the person next to you. Ask God. But if you want to look at the Bible, Abraham gave from his all. He went, and this thing, went and had a, a battle with three kings, and he, he won. He wasn't, even a, he wasn't even a warrior. He was a farmer. But he took some guys, 360-something guys, and they had a fight, and he won. And it says he took back the plunder, and it says God, Abraham gave from his all of his plunder. Jacob, in Genesis 20-something, 20 28, I think it is, he says, God, because you've blessed me, I will give you a tenth of all of my increase. It wasn't after tax. If you're a farmer and you're plowing your field and you're harv or you're harvesting your grain, what do you give an offering to the Lord from? Your all, all of your harvest. It's in the Bible. Let, let, let's, let's make it modern. Let's really stir the pot. What happens if you make money from selling a house? 
Property market's gone up, you decide to move, your house goes up by $100,000. Should you give on that increase? I would. Because God blesses you as a result of your sacrifice. If you read the Old Testament, oh no, this, where does this one come from? This is a quote from me. This is in a different order to my notes. That's what happens when you've got one eye on the rugby. I used to say, I say this in my seminars, it's not how much money you have that counts, it's what you do with it. I was helping a friend of mine who has a factory in Hamilton making steel uh, piping and tubing for furniture and for fencing and all sorts of other things. And these guys are uh, factory workers on minimum wage, and they'd always come to him saying, oh, boss, boss, it's really hard. Can you give me some more money? I need an increase in my wages. And he got me in to help them to do better with what they had. Because he says, look, if you're on 17, or in those days, that was above the minimum wage. Uh, if you're on 17 bucks an hour and I give you 18, you'll still need more. Because there's holes in your pocket. If I give you $20 an hour, you're still going to need more because there's problems in your finances. So it's not how much you've got that fixes your circumstances. It's what you learn to do with it that counts. Money doesn't make you someone. It simply reveals who you are. There are, if you want to follow the Bible, there are five biblical offerings in the Old Testament. We teach New Testament giving, I'll say that in a minute, but if you really want to follow the letter of the law, God's given us a pattern for how we approach Him. So in Jesus, the law was fully accomplished, meaning He satisfied all the requirements of the law. That's how you can become righteous. It's the only way you can become righteous. But the law's there to show us and point to something, and in this case, it points to how we approach God. The Jews would come to Jerusalem from anywhere in Israel, five times a year, to bring an offering and a sacrifice in order that they would present themselves before God to be reasonably accepted. So our heart, the condition of our heart, is how we come before God. So money has got the power to grab your heart. If you don't get this area of your life right, it's going to grab your heart and you won't be able to present yourself before God. Certainly not in the way that he would like. As a church, we have a New Testament approach to teaching finances. And as a church, we structure things to help our people. And we say that there are three types of giving. There is regular giving, which is the first of your regular living. There is missions giving. We give overseas to bless those in, in partnership with the spreading of the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and widows and orphans and, and other activities. That's missions giving. And we depend on people being stirred by God to give into that. And then we have vision or faith offering. But we categorize it. We say, look, there are three different things and go on the journey with God in each of those areas. The other week, three weeks ago, we ran a, a Sunday night service and we, I did a whole lot of um, teaching and activation around how to help people find healing in the area of money. And that, that might sound odd to you. You're like, you could heal someone if they have a so a leg or a, uh, an eye that doesn't work or even a heart that's broken. But can you heal them in the area of money? Yes, you can. Because for 20 years, I've been teaching people what to do with their money in practical terms of budgeting and goal setting and paying off debt and I've helped lots of people launch businesses. I've helped people pay off their homes so they're mortgage-free. 
And the Lord said to me, yeah, this is good, but what you're not fixing is what's wrong with their heart. Because I'd noticed the high percentage of people would get free and then they'd go back into bondage. And then they'd get free and they'd go back into bondage. They'd get free and they'd go back into bondage. And God said, it's the condition of their heart. And I went on a journey for years, learning and understanding how to set people free in the heart so that their finances would be free. Because I think it comes up on the screen here next. Most money matters are spiritual matters first. If you've got money struggles, I'd go after this one. And Jesus is in the business of healing people in their heart and their wallet. Finally, let's point to the Macedonians. This one is a bit of a bender. We're going we're gonna to talk about this one today. Paul writes, I testify the Macedonians gave not only what they could afford, but far more. And, and they did it of their free will. I mean, how do you get your head around that if you're into budgets? Balances and checks and making sure that you can pay your bills at the end of the week and that you've got enough for the kids' shoes and schools and uniforms and, and uh, conferences and, and, and cake sales. If I, if I had a dollar, one dollar, for every time I've been told by someone that they can't afford to give, I'd be living on a tropical island. I'd have lots of money. Because I've been told that so many times. And today I'm going to start to unlock this one, but if I could just give you this quote, and by now you should be able to quote this back to me, because I say it all the time. Don't judge God by your circumstances. Instead, judge your circumstances by God. Saying you can't afford to give is taking your eyes off God. And today and next week, I want to help you with that. I'm purposely stirring stuff at the end of our series and I'm winding up the pressure on purpose, but because God's asked me to. No one will die, but some people's lives might change. So hopefully you're going to listen to the rest of the message, because I've only got a really short time to do something incredibly intense. So let's zoom forward. Are you okay? Are you ready for a ride? I'm going for it. Are you ready? It's going to be fun. Who knows? Your life might change. Okay, who can tell me what this is a picture of? The Sistine Chapel. Who painted the Sistine Chapel? Michelangelo painted the Sistine Chapel. Has anyone been to the Sistine Chapel? Put your hand up. A few people have been. So where is it? It's in Rome, which is in Italy. Yeah, if you haven't been there, it's beautiful. Otherwise, you can just look at photos on the internet. But it's remarkable the intricate detail Michelangelo did in his commissioning of this art. Uh, so this, this, this chapel is a long hallway. It's 40 meters long. And the whole ceiling and the sides are painted by hand by one man. There are nine scenes about creation and the end times. It's all about giving glory to God. That chapel is over 12 meters wide. So 40 meters long, 12 meters wide. But here's the deal. It's 20 meters high. So he painted this in the 17th century on a ladder or a scaffold or some kind of device. But Michelangelo did this, and, and the truth is, it's an extravagant piece of art to bring glory to God. His work brings glory to God. This, if you can kind of picture it, it's a little bit funny, but it's a picture of the inside of a church. 
Sir Christopher Wren was a world-famous architect designed in London over 53 ornate and extravagant churches and chapels. He was knighted, so Sir Christopher Wren. And this shows you the inside of a church that you'll find in London and in Europe, ornate and intricate in its paneling, and it's, it's insane. But the reason they did it this way was that, in their view, where they came to worship represented who they came to worship. So Christopher Wren um, tells the story of when they were rebuilding St. Paul's Cathedral after a fire in the 17th century, he went up to some brickworkers, and he said to the first man, hey, what is it that you were doing? And the man says, well, I'm laying bricks. He goes up to the second man working on the wall, and he says, what are you doing? And the man says, well, look, I'm building a wall. And then the architect went to the third man, he says, what are you doing? He says, I'm building a cathedral to the glory of God Almighty. You see, these guys would see something as an edifice to glorify God. Their lives were a sacrifice to build something that would bring glory to God. Not just the mundane of laying of bricks, but something that would glorify God and be there for a long time. Guys, our lives are like that. Are you laying bricks or are you building a cathedral? And thirdly, this third building... I have to apologize, I couldn't find an actual photo, um, but this is a picture that represents, who can guess? It's, it's, there's a clue there in the right corner. This is the temple of God. Yeah, like I didn't get a real photo, but someone made one up. This is Solomon's temple that he constructed. He built it for the Lord, it was a magnificent building, and they built it under instruction, intricate detail given to them in order that they would bring glory to God Almighty. It was a magnificent building, took many, many years, and lots and lots of effort. Let's pick the story up, because I want you to see something. I'm going to look backwards before I look forwards. Second Chronicles, for those of you taking notes, Second Chronicles chapter 5, verse 1, it says this, Solomon finished all his work on the temple of the Lord. Then he brought all the gifts that his father David had dedicated the silver and the gold and the various articles. And he stored them all in the treasuries of God. In verse 7, the priests carried the ark of the Lord's covenant into the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place. And they placed it beneath the wings of the cherubim. In verse 13 and 14, the trumpeters and singers performed together in unison to praise and give thanks to the Lord. Accompanied by their trumpets and cymbals and other instruments, they raised their voices and praised the Lord with these words. He is good. His faithful love endures forever, singing about the Lord. At that moment, a thick cloud filled the temple of the Lord. The priests could not continue their service because of the cloud, for the glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple of God. You see, in this place, God had commissioned them to do something, to build something with their lives that would bring Him glory. And when they'd finished it and they dedicated it back to Him, He turned up in a cloud of His presence that meant that they couldn't even withstand the service that they were trying to perform. They had to remove themselves. This is, this is what Solomon said in, in, in the following chapter 6, verse 7. My father David wanted to build this temple. To honor the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. 
But the Lord told him, you wanted to build a temple to honor on my name. This is what God told David. Your, your intention is good, but you're not the one to do it. One of your sons will build the temple and honor me. So Solomon says, and now the Lord has fulfilled the promise he made. For I have become king in my father's place. Now I sit on the throne of Israel just as the Lord promised. I have built this temple to honor the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And there I have placed the ark, which contains the covenant the Lord has made with his people. Solomon is saying, I've been obedient to fulfill the promise that God has given us. So, so what I want you to see is that this is an, a, a place where God is glorified through the lives of his people. But how did we get to this point? How do we get here that there's a journey we've got to understand that, that can help you to shape your heart and your journey so that you and your life build something that brings glory to God? So we've got to go backwards. There's a clue in this passage. If you heard Solomon say, look, my dad David wanted to build it, but God said, no, it's not for you. It's for Solomon. So let's look at David. So what I want you to do is turn backwards or swipe backwards, 1 Chronicles 29. And if you're making notes, just make this note from verse 1 to 9. 1 Chronicles 29, verses 1 to 9. Have a read of that when you're reflecting on these notes. But let's just look at verse 3. David says, And now, because of my devotion to the temple of God, I am giving all of my own private treasures of gold and silver to help in the construction. This is in addition to the building materials I've already collected for the temple. So David had such a commitment to God's temple and God being glorified amongst the people that he said, look, that's it. I'm giving all of my treasure, all of my gold and everything I've got, I'm giving it so that God can be glorified. So this is a real sacrifice there. What am I trying to get you to see at this point? Giving is worship. And worship only happens when you sacrifice. You know, we, we stand here before and we're singing to God and the band are leading us and the presence of God is in the room and people are connecting with what God wants to say to them. But that's only going to happen if you sacrifice yourself, if you get out of the way and allow God to minister to you. And this is what David shows us. He says, I see what God wants and I'm willing to give all. I'm willing to offer a sacrifice in worship. And, and we've got to learn something about David, and we're going to see this in a minute, because David shows us the keys that are going to help us to change our heart. But just let's look at the outcome of this um, passage that I've shared with you, because um, I wanted you just to look at verse 9. Um, I, I mean, look at the details. Those of you that like lists and details, how many tons of silver and tons of, of gold that they gave for the overlaying of the walls. I mean, this, this building was ornate. It had the walls lined with gold, it had special jewels and treasures, and it was magnificent in craftsmanship, all to the glory of God. But in verse 9, it says this, The people rejoiced over the offerings, for they had given freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord. And King David was filled with joy. You see, the people found in their expression of sacrifice and their expression of giving to something that would bring glory to God, that they found that they were overwhelmed and were able to rejoice, being filled with, what does rejoice mean? To be filled with, it's in the middle of the word. Rejoice means to be filled with 
Oh, there you go. So, so this extravagant act of giving something to God's glory filled them with joy. Well, didn't we read that in the Macedonian passage? Out of their extreme affliction, it was an abundance of joy. Mm. So David had joy as well. And the result of joy is love. So one of the things that we learn when we read the Bible is that sacrifice is driven by love. And I've purposefully used this image on the screen because it's most commonly accepted as the best picture of love we could come up with ever. Ever. So, does this picture remind you of someone? Let me ask it a different way. Who does this picture remind you of? Okay, say it a bit louder so everyone gets the same answer. Okay, so this picture reminds us of Jesus. Why don't we ask this question then? What does John 3.16 say? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believed in him should life eternal and should not perish. What's the motive for that verse? Love. God demonstrated love when he gave Jesus his Son. What about 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9? There's a little buried in the passage there. Have a, have a listen to this. You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. It's not talking about money. It's talking about understanding life. Jesus had everything. Him and God, all hanging out, happy times. But before the beginning of time, they decided Jesus would come and give everything in order that you could be redeemed back to the Father. The most extravagant gift ever. What about John 15, verse 13? You remember that? Jesus in the garden, hanging out with some buddies, talking about the vine. Remember that conversation? They're walking in the night. And in verse 13, Jesus says this. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. Remember at Easter, we talked the message on Easter Sunday that there was joy in the cross for Jesus. It says in the scriptures, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Who is that joy? Remember, if you were here on Easter Sunday, who's the joy? You are. So in his sacrifice of love, Jesus also found joy. I'm seeing patterns here. And finally, what I want you to see, because I'm, I'm moving towards David here, is love. Love is best demonstrated when you lay down your life for someone. So what does love look like? Laying down your life. Jesus, what did he do? Lay down his life. But let's look at David. Because I want you to see something about David, and this is where we learn how we can live in the best way possible, and then you're going to be able to apply this to your finances. But in First Chronicles, we're following David's story. In First Chronicles, there's a couple of things that David does. First Chronicles 15, there's this um, journey that he's going on to bring the Ark of the Covenant back into Israel, into Jerusalem. 
You remember, he's having this time and he's bringing it and then they have an accident and some poor guy loses his life. Um, and then after a while, they go and they get it back again and they carry it. And David now built buildings and he set up a special place for the Ark of the Covenant. And then he commanded, no one except the Levites may carry this. The Lord has chosen them. So what he's trying to do is he's trying to bring God's presence back into Jerusalem so that God can be honored and worshipped in his own city, in his place where he dwells in Zion, if you do the full study on it. But then David does this thing. It says, David and the elders went to the house and they brought the thing up. And I'm going to read this really quickly. He's dressed in a fine robe of linen and they were singing and they were playing musical instruments. And David was wearing the ephod, the priestly garment. But as it entered, David is singing and dancing before the people. And my paraphrasing, like an idiot. With joyful abandonment of everything that anyone might think of him. He was so ridiculous that his wife looks out the window and goes, look at that egg. And she has contempt for him for the rest of his life. That's how ridiculous David was in his worship. He's dancing, and, and, and she accused him of being naked, but this passage says he's got clothes on, so we won't argue it. But whatever he was doing, he was dancing like a, a loony in front of the people. He's the king of all of Israel. And yet he says, I will lay down my life to worship the one who is worthy of it all. Shows us the man's heart. It shows us something about his heart. David doesn't care for his pride. Love looks like laying down your pride. David doesn't care for his position. So love looks like laying down your position. David doesn't even care for his personal preference because love looks like laying down your preference. Sometimes the response we give to God is all about putting aside what we want and doing what he asks us to because that's what worship is. That's what love is. That's what a sacrifice looks like. But this isn't the punchline. Because there's something else that David shows us. And I wanted to show you his heart before I showed you his actions. Because David's heart reveals who he was, then then who he was determined what he did. Does that make sense? So there's a little story in First Chronicles 21. I'm not going to read it. I'm going to give you the short version. David makes a mistake. And God's anger burns against all of Israel. There's a plague and 70,000 people die. Not a happy story. And David's heart is such that he goes before God and said, it's my fault, I made a mistake, and I want to make it right. And so God says, all right, I want you to go, and I want you to go to the field. So in the background of this photo, you can see the city of David in the background, Jerusalem. He says, I want you to go north to the hill, and I want you to buy this place and build a place of worship, build an altar there for me that you would worship me and I will restore Israel. And David says, well, I heard what to do. I've got a heart to be obedient, so I'm going to go and do what the Lord asked me to do. He turns up to this guy's house. You can see this guy and his family working hard. This guy's got two different names and different stories, but Aranur, Aranur, anyway, it's in, it's in the Bible. 
Um, and, and he comes up and, he, and he's, he's the king. But if you read the story, and please read the story in First Chronicles 21, because there's an angel that turns up, and the farmer sees the angel, and him and his sons freak out, and not in this picture, because it's actually a made-up picture, but they go and hide from the angel, because they think they're about to die. David, the king, turns up, which make it doubly worse. You'd freak out. And David says, oh, by the way, um, God told me I should buy this, have this place for, to build an altar to worship God, because then the people will be restored before God. And the farmer, whose name I can't pronounce today, says, oh, um, I'll give it to you. And this is the punchline. If you only remember one thing from this morning, please remember this phrase. David says this, verse 24, I will not present an offering that has cost me nothing. We see the heart of the man who worships with reckless abandonment, putting aside his, his pride, his position, and his personal preference. The heart determines what he does, and his heart is represented by his actions. And here we see him say, I will not present an offering to the Lord that has cost me nothing. That's the punchline. May this burn in your heart today. May this resonate in you and the Holy Spirit convict you to a place of response where you ask God, what does this mean for me? Would you let go of the control of everything and allow him to be in control? You find the same thing paralleled here with the Macedonians. I've put the two verses on the screen on purpose because the Macedonians did the same thing. Paul says, look, they gave more than they could afford and they did it in their own free will. Liberality. Generosity that flows out of joy. If I could get the host team to, to hand out those um, card, the cards we're using, these, these should not be a surprise to you if you've been here in the last couple of weeks. You know, we are looking for a response. The elders have asked us as the preaching team, teaching team, to lead people towards a response. And if you haven't yet filled in a card, I really want you to. I'd like you to. And over the next two weeks, this week and next week, this, this is the finish of the series. So we're going to give you a car, we're going to give you a pen, but by now I'm hoping that you've at least thought about it, you've chatted about it, you've wondered and you've asked God about it. Well, let me, as they're giving those out, let me, let me say these thoughts. You need to hear this. God's truth demands a response from us all. God's truth demands a response from us all. Second thought is that faith is an action word. Faith is not about believing, it's about doing. If you just believe that Jesus was the Son of God but didn't do anything about it, you're not saved. You're not invited into eternity with God. You had to do something about it. You had to lay your life down and surrender control and say, Jesus, you be Lord of my life. And that confession and that action is what connects you in with God's purpose for your life. Faith is an action word. James, the apostle, says it differently. He says, well, show me your faith by what you do. Stop talking about it and start doing something about it. Finally, obedience trumps ritual. Obedience trumps ritual. Please do not allow the ritual of your automatic payment to rob you of the joy of your obedience if God is taking you somewhere greater. What is God asking you to do? 
Don't allow your automatic payment to put a tick in this and go, oh, I'm sorted. I got it done. No problems. You could be robbing yourself of the joy of what God's doing in your life. Um, the team have asked me to um, share this picture with you because Craig said something recently. It's actually not about equal giving. We're not expecting everybody to do the same thing. Equality on the left-hand side, let me put the heading up for you now you've seen the picture. Equality is about everyone getting the same and doing the same. That's not how the kingdom works. There is nowhere in the Bible that says the kingdom of God is about equality. That's not biblical. But what it is about is equity. Not equal giving, but equal sacrifice. And this picture just shows that not everyone's going to be the same in order to achieve God's outcomes. We're all in this together, and God is looking for the heart sacrifice. Are you guys doing okay? Like, I've got this little note in my notes right here, right now. Do we have time for you to go here? Isn't that funny? <laughs> I'm like, preparing this, I'm like building it up, and I'm like, oh my goodness, I can guess what the time's going to be by the time I do this. You want it? Are you up for it? I might stir you up. I might mess you up. Should we do it? Okay, I'm not voting because I don't do that. Here's, here's the thing. Look, I think it's here. This verse here. They gave more than they could afford. But then, let me really mess you up because the Bible contradicts itself all the time. In the same passage of Scripture... Paul contradicts himself, you think. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. So look at the screen. Chapter 8 verse 3. Let me read to you verse 10. Paul says this. Listen to his words. Here's my advice. It would be good for you to finish what you started a year ago. Last year you were the first to want to give. And you were first to begin doing to it, doing it. And now you should finish what you started. Let the eagerness you showed in the beginning be matched by your giving. Given proportion to what you have. Verse 12. Whatever you give is acceptable if you give it eagerly and give according to what you have, not what you don't have. Is Paul confused? Because he's just contradicted himself. I want you to mimic the Macedonians, he writes, who gave not only what they had, but far more than that. And then you read this, because you're going to, because that's what you do when you have devotions, and you go, oh, hang on, I'm confused. And I got confused. So I studied it. And I researched it, and I looked at the language, and I, looked at, I tried to interpret what the scholars say about the Greek. And I'm not going to give you all of that. But what I am going to give you is the simple statement that came out of all of my research. What Paul is saying is, give according to your Willingness. Give according to your willingness. You're not going to be measured on what you do do. You're going to be measured on what God's asked you to do. Big difference. Paul is saying, don't go and do what you're not supposed to. Do what you're asked to. And you'll only be asked to do what God knows you can do. We all need help, so next week I'm going to teach you how to give more than you have. That's next week's lesson. And you do not want to miss it. Because you're going to learn it's not about you. 
but you can be used by God to do amazing things for God, and it's not about you. Case in point, Luke 21, for those of you writing notes, go and read the story of the widow's coins. Jesus sits at the temple and watches the people bring in their offerings. We do that when we're in Indonesia. Because we're the white man, we get sat in the front row, and then the, the music starts and everyone lines up and they bring their offering to a bowl at the front. And it's pretty obvious who's not in the queue. Jesus is doing the same thing in the temple in Jerusalem. He's sitting there with his buddies and he's watching the rich people give big gifts. What does that tell us? He sees the amount of money they're putting in the offering. Well, that's going to challenge some of us. And then he sees a widow drop in two coins. And Jesus says in Luke 21, look at this woman. These men gave out of their riches and their surplus. This woman gave everything she had. Why does Jesus show us that story? Why is it recorded in the book of Luke? Because we are not measured by what we do, but by what God's asked us to do. This woman gives everything she has. Does that mean she died tomorrow because she can't eat? Is that what God's up to? Is that what God does? Is that God's heart? Is that the heart of a father? No. We don't know what happened to her. But I could point you to another story in 1 Kings chapter 17. If you're taking notes, go and read about the widow at Zarephath. Elijah says, hey, woman, what are you, cook me a, cook, cook me a meal. I tried that once, it didn't work. <laughs> this woman was complicit and said, but... Um, I'm talking about, you know, like, somewhere, someone else. But um, another lifetime, another country. I'm just trying to dig myself out there. Elijah says, woman, cook me a meal. And she says, look, I'm just gathering a few sticks because I'm going to cook our last meal and me and my son are going to die. He says, oh, rubbish. Cook me a meal anyway. And she does. And the prophet says, look, as the Lord says, there will always be enough flour and oil in your containers until the drought is over. And then the next verse says, and just as the Lord had promised, it was. She was asked to give a sacrifice, and in response to her obedience, God moved in a powerful way. It's not about what we do do, it's about what we're asked to do. Let me give you a completely different theory. Let's talk about healing. Let's say I get a word of knowledge that someone, God wants to heal someone today. Can I physically heal someone? No. So if I know that I can't physically heal someone, does that stop me from praying for healing? Well, it shouldn't. But if I believe I can't heal someone, so I say, well, I'm not going to pray... And then I don't pray, does the healing happen? No. Because God always chooses to work through someone in their sacrifice and the laying down of themselves in order that he would do something magnificent. Money is no different. Paul says we must give according to our willingness. And that's a challenge. So what do you do? You pray first, you act second, and you believe third. Pray first, act second, believe third. Faith is in your action. The elders are measuring uh, what we're doing as uh, leaders by the responses we get. So we really do need your response. The elders use your response to give indication of what's happening in the life of the church and make plans. And so the level of response determines the plans that we make because we can't make plans without resource. In addition to that, I want you to know where your money goes in relation to missions. 
These are some of the children that we sponsor in Indonesia. We have 10 sponsor kids at Hope Village. And when we visit them, it's like visiting family. I'm fortunate enough to have been there for the last four years, several times each year. When I'm in Indonesia, I try and make an effort to drive up there and to see the kids. And it's always a special time. But it costs us money. It costs us $5,000 a year to sponsor these kids in Hope Village, giving them lodging, education, clothing, and hope for a future. These kids are orphans. They are rescued out of horrid situations. Maybe you want to sponsor one of them. Maybe you want to just give $20 a week towards one of those kids. Maybe you want to buy them a gift. Maybe you want to come with me one time. It's up to you. But these are the kids we sponsor, and it's important for me to communicate to you things that we do. Last week, you saw the video about South Africa and the work that we're investing into over there with the uh, night workers and the prisoners and the kids who are on the street and the gospel message of Jesus Christ. I've shown you videos of India. I've shown you videos of other stuff. These are, this week, I'm showing you these kids. And so on your card, you might want to commit to giving money towards missions, and you'll be contributing towards this. As I close, but I want to pray that you would discover the wealth of your liberality. Let's pray. Almighty God, I thank you that you're with us in this journey, that you are empowering us with the truth, and you're also leading us in obedience. I pray today that the church would understand that you are leading them into a place where they experience the wealth of their liberality, the generosity that flows out of joy. God, I ask right now for a revelation of Jesus in this moment that each person would know that Jesus is with them, that because Jesus is with them, they can live in joy. Because they can live in joy, your goodness flows out of them an extravagant abundance of good works to the glory of God. Lord, may that be the revelation. May that be what we catch as we live with you. Lord, I pray for faith in the room right now. No fear. There's no fear allowed to operate here because the love of God drives out all fear. But Lord, would you come in response to that, in response to love, would you bring faith, faithful people, Faith that they can have confidence in you, confidence to respond and partner with you, knowing that even as the widow gave all she had, you supplied for her needs, knowing that as the widow in Zarephath gave her last, that you honored that sacrifice and you blessed her and looked after her. Lord, may we also mimic the Macedonians, that regardless of circumstance, we would put our faith in you. We would be obedient and we would respond with the wealth of our liberality. Lord, I bless these people in the name of Jesus Christ. I bless them with the love of God our Father, and I bless them with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit that as they go, they would know you are good, that you are with them, and you are for them. Amen.